This week's movie was the focal point for one of cult cinema's most enduring mysteries, and it's the rare film that became even more interesting once that mystery was solved. Got good news and bad news, girls. The good news is your dates are here. What's the bad news? They're dead. I'm gonna take you to the bank. To the blood bank. Welcome, B-Movie Maniacs, to another episode of B-Movie Babylon, a safe space for trash cinema lovers where we firmly believe the B&B movie stands for brilliant. I'm your host, Mike Bracken. Some of you may know me as the horror geek on YouTube, or from my stint on Comedy Central's old pop culture game show, Beat the Geeks. Others will remember me as that dick on social media. And I'm really all of the above. No matter how you know me, thanks for being here as we stock the forgotten corners of the video store in search of the best B-movies ever made. Whether you love martial arts mayhem, low-budget rip-offs of popular movies, direct-to-video skinamax flicks, classic horror fare, sleaze, or exploitation, I've got you covered. The history of cinema is filled with controversial films, movies that unsettled and upset audiences with their themes, characters, special effects, or subject matter. A quick perusal of any decent, disturbing films list will start you down the rabbit hole of depraved cinema by pointing out titles like August Underground, Cannibal Holocaust, or Solo. But when we dig deeper towards the roots of the ancestral tree of unsettling cinema, all paths eventually lead back to one movie. Victor Janos' 1973 exploitation shocker, The Last House on Dead End Street. This art house grindhouse classic spent decades shrouded in mystery and controversy, inspiring rumors that it was a real honest-to-God snuff film. And yet, the true story behind Roger Watkins' brutal meditation on human depravity is arguably more interesting than what happens on screen. Last House on Dead End Street is one part urban legend, one part guerrilla filmmaking manifesto, and a 100% transgressively disturbing cinematic nightmare. Today, we'll talk about the mystery of the film's creation, the lost three-hour cut, and its impact on modern extreme cinema. But first, allow me to set the stage for this one by chronicling how I came to learn about this controversial cult classic. Like so many 80s kids, my first exposure to what I'd probably refer to as, quote, taboo cinema came around 1986 when I first saw Faces of Death on VHS. I'd grown up watching horror films and reading Fangoria, Gorezone, Cinefantastique, and pretty much any movie magazine I could get my hands on. I'd spent years lusting for uncut Argento and Fulci and conjuring crazy images in my head as to what Cannibal Holocaust would look like. But unfortunately, those films just really weren't available locally. And when they were, they were butchered, truncated versions like the Seven Doors of Death cut of The Beyond, directed by the suspiciously named Louis Fuller. But for whatever reason, Faces of Death was something the local indie mom and pop video stores carried, and it was a rite of passage to see it in junior high. So one night, I wound up staying at my pal Eric's place. His parents were gone, and he'd rented this infamous little film, and after a lot of build-up, I was finally gonna see it. It's really a testament to how crazy the 80s were that you could just go up to the mom-and-pop video store on the corner at 13 years old and rent Faces of Death with absolutely no pushback. It really was a different time. I mean, nowadays, kids just find their real gore on the internet. Anyway, sitting there watching the real deaths of John Allen Schwartz's shockumentary was one of those pivotal moments in the life of a young horror geek. Even at 13, I wasn't entirely sold on a lot of the stuff in Faces of Death being real, because it wasn't, although a lot of people believed it was. But I was absolutely fascinated by the concept of Mondo, shockumentaries, and forbidden cinema. It was there, in this modestly middle-class living room in the suburbs, that I discovered what was to become a lifelong obsession with seeing some of the most disturbing, revolting, and horrifying shit ever caught on camera. This eventually led me down a really deep rabbit hole of not only Mondo films from Italy, but to strange fictional films too. 
I started picking up on stuff from Chaz Balin, who was really almost single-handedly responsible for me doing this as a career. I never got to meet Chaz, but his work had an indelible impact on young me. I'd already discovered Joe Bob and his work. Then I nabbed a copy of the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film from the library and discovered a whole new world of weird movies. If you grew up in the internet age and all that, you really don't get how hard it used to be to find weird movies. Your local indie video store might have a cut copy of Suspiria, if you were lucky. I mean, I'd find H.G. Lewis's early gore efforts, but good luck finding Coffin Joe. Now, everything's basically just a click away. Amazon will bring you a pristine Blu-ray copy of Cannibal Ferox tomorrow with a few button presses. I'm not entirely sure this is progress. Without turning into the Grandpa Simpson yelling at Clouds meme, there was something to be said for tracking down cult movies in the 80s and 90s. You had to work, and you had to be patient. I spent like $100 on a grainy 18th generation bootleg of the Halloween 6 producer's cut back in the mid-90s. And you bought it on faith the guy would actually send you the tape and not just run off with your cash. Again, it was a different time, but it was also a sort of magical time, too. Anyway, things like the Psychotronic Guy were practically holy texts. Same with the Xeroxed gray market tape seller catalogs from places like Video Search of Miami and Revoc. I spent more time studying the movies in that thing than I did in my actual textbooks for school. And the kicker? 99% of these movies weren't even available here. I literally had a notebook filled with movies I was always on the lookout for. The Ilsas, the guinea pigs, the snuffs of the underground cinema world. I looked for them in every video store I entered. I didn't even need the notebook after a while. The titles were literally a part of me, a litany or catechism, basically. I could recite them in my sleep. Michael Weldon's book made me aware of a lot of weird movies, but one really stuck out. Nestled in those pages, near Last House of the Left and Last House on the Left 2, which was actually Mario Bava's classic of Bay of Blood, the template for modern slasher cinema, retitled to cash in on the success of Craven's movie, was a film called Last House on Dead End Street. That tiny paragraph review wasn't much, mentioning it was gory and, quote, stamped with a cult classic tag. But the last line was the one that got me. Do you know anyone who admits to seeing this? I didn't, but I now had a mission to find it and be the guy who'd gladly admit to seeing this weird cinematic oddity. Early attempts to track down the film were wholly unsuccessful. And as I said, one of the hallmarks of being someone interested in really obscure cult films in the 80s was patience. He just kept looking. And while, and while I kept looking for Last House on Dead End Street, perhaps the title was mocking me. The search often felt like a proverbial dead end. I also kept digging into other films and books about those films. In 1996, I found David Karakesh and David Slater's Killing for Culture, an illustrated history of death film from Mondo to Snuff. I have often thought I could easily write a book about death films and Mondo and all that, but there's no point. Karakesh and Slater have done it so well, and then released an updated version that's even better a few years ago, that there's no way I could add anything to that conversation. Killing for Culture is a definitive look at a very taboo topic. It is, no lie, one of a handful of books I own that I'm sure if the police ever showed up with a search warrant and saw them, they'd be convinced I was a serial killer or some kind of monster. But in those pages, Karakesh wrote about Last House on Dead End Street. And the mystery only deepened for me because even Karakesh talked about how mythical this film was. They weren't sure when or where it was made. No one had ever really seen it. There were many who were convinced that it either A, didn't actually exist, or B, was financed by drug lords in South America, and a bunch of other crazy claims. In the section devoted to the film, Karakesh offers a pretty complete breakdown of the 77-minute cut of Last House, which only intrigued me more, then reiterates that the film's provenance is still shrouded in mystery, pointing out that searching for any of the people involved leads to nothing but dead ends. 
But even more interesting is his take that the film, while crudely shot and relatively amateurish in some regards, was not just a quick exploitation film cash grab. Victor Janos, whoever he was, was a filmmaker with some actual talent. By this point, there were some bootlegs of the film floating around. Many of them seemingly came from the same source, some cruddy South American copy that had absolutely been dubbed and redubbed into oblivion. The colors on this bootleg were completely off, the picture was softer than Drake, it was just not great. Hell, it might have even been recorded off a of TV. But after a decade of searching, I took the plunge so I could finally see Victor Janos's film. I'd love to tell you that this was a life-changing experience for me, but after years of reading about this thing, looking for it, and then wondering if it was even real, well, it was just sort of okay. Last House on Dead End Street could never possibly live up to its reputation after all that time. But it was a rough film, both figuratively and literally. It felt very much like a student film, and yet, Karakesh was right. There really was something subversive about it. I kept thinking about it after I'd moved on to other movies. At least part of that was because there was still this mystery about who Victor Janos was. Although, to be fair, Chaz had basically solved that mystery years earlier, but it was either ignored or just not accepted. I can't say for sure because I didn't find out about him outing Roger Watkins as the director until just a few years ago. Anyway, the other thing that I kept coming back to, especially as the mystery of the film unraveled, was how absolutely influential it was as an early example of extreme horror. It's no exaggeration to say that Last House on Dead End Street dramatically upped the stakes for splatter cinema, especially when you consider this was actually made in 1972 and 1973, just a few short years after H.G. Lewis helped invent the subgenre and scandalize audiences with Blood Feast. That film looks absolutely quaint compared to Last House on Dead End Street. And you can see Janos' fingerprints on films like Flower of Flesh and Blood, August Underground, Bouquet of Guts and Gore, and more of this generation's extreme horror cinema. At any rate, we'll talk more about the legacy and influence of the film in a bit. But now, let's dive in and unravel the mystery of who Victor Janos really was and what happened to this film. We'll do that right after this quick break. Before we get into the fine details behind this movie mystery, it's probably helpful to understand the world that gave birth to this demented vision. Last House on Dead End Street made its premiere at the Cannes and Berlin Film Festival in 1973 under its original name, The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell. That title was a reference to Vonnegut's Mother Night. Five years earlier, America was captivated by the crimes of the Manson family, particularly the Tate and LaBianca murders. Those crimes were the focus of a multitude of books and movies, including Ed Sanders' The Family, the story of Charles Manson's Dune Buggy Attack Battalion. Sanders, who was in the music group The Fugs, covered the crimes and the trial, and even spent time at the Spawn Ranch. Sanders' book on the subject of the Manson family's crimes is most notable for one thing. In it, the author reports that Manson's crew murdered a woman in California and filmed it before burying the movie in the desert. Sanders called this a snuff movie, marking what appears to be the point where the concept of film murders for profit really entered the collective consciousness. As a quick side note here, there are earlier examples of the concept, going back as far as 1907, but debating the origins of this particularly abhorrent cinema concept is beyond the scope of this episode. I might be persuaded to talk about that at some point in the future if people are interested. It seems at best unlikely that Manson's family ever filmed this particular crime or that the crime even took place, as far as I can tell. The film has never been found, and the anonymous interviewee admits he never actually saw the footage and had only heard about it secondhand. However, like all good urban legends, this part is irrelevant, because once Pandora's box was open, people became convinced there was a shadowy network of rich patrons and low-budget filmmakers out there making these kinds of murder movies. It's this idea of the snuff film that sits at the heart of Last House on Dead End Street. 
In the film, Terry Hawkins, played by Stephen Morrison, who's just Victor Janos, a.k.a. Roger Watkins, working under a pseudonym, is released from prison after serving a year for drug violations. For the possession and sale of dangerous drugs, the state of New York hereby sentences you, Terrence Hawkins, to one year in the state penitentiary. Eager to make some money, he decides filmmaking is his path to financial success. <laughs> Not just any kind of filmmaking. Terry concludes that adult films aren't stimulating enough for modern audiences and that they crave something more extreme. And he's just the guy to give it to them. With the help of some adult film producers and a small group of associates, he takes over an abandoned building and starts filming his cinematic nightmare. A film where the special effects are real and the stars die on camera. The film was released theatrically as The Funhouse in 1977, but this was the shorter version of the film with the extra 100 minutes lost somewhere along the way, a fact that will become important later. Then, in 1979, Cinematic Releasing Corporation acquired the rights to the film, and like many of the distributors of that era, they repackaged the movie to fit their own needs. The biggest change? The title was swapped from The Funhouse to The Last House on Dead End Street. This decision was clearly made as the new distributor hoped to cash in on the success of Wes Craven's seminal Last House on the Left, released back in 1972. The new version was even brazen enough to steal the infamous Last House on the Left tagline of It's only a movie. In practical terms, this is where the story of Last House on Dead End Street should end. Except the distributors of Last House on Dead End Street made one key decision that would rocket the movie into cult film infamy and make it the subject of heated debates about the fate of everyone involved for nearly a quarter of a century. For whatever reason, the new distributors decided to use pseudonyms for everyone involved with the film in the credits. As such, Last House on Dead End Street was credited to one Victor Janos for decades. Anyone interested in finding out more about Mr. Janos quickly ran into a dead end not like the one mentioned in the film's title. Janos simply did not exist in any provable way. Digging into the cast and crew credits revealed more of the same. Last House on Dead End Street was a low-budget production made by people who apparently didn't want to be tied to the film. Naturally, this led to lots of dubious speculation about why none of the people involved in the film actually existed. Given the mysterious nature of the film's provenance and the grimy low-budget grindhouse aesthetic of the movie as a whole, many people began to speculate about the true nature of Last House on Dead End Street. Great, as a virgin bride to a beloved husband, and the end, the unclothed answer is me, Terry. The fact that the film was incredibly hard to come by in the days before the internet, boutique-labeled disc releases, and file-sharing sites only added to its dark mystique. We had people who had never seen the film beyond a few stills or screenshots pontificating about the identity of those involved in making it and whether it was a real-deal exercise in snuff. For his part, Watkins was completely unaware of the film's growing reputation in cult film circles, at least until he was recognized by a PR guy who had been promoting the film from one of the distributors. Watkins says the guy told him the film had played in the South as the Funhouse, raking in like four million bucks in ticket sales, which is impressive for what was essentially a student film made for literally zero dollars. But he went on to explain to Watkins that they were gearing up for a re-release of the film, and this time they were sending it out as The Last House on Dead End Street. That was a great title from a branding perspective. It tied in nicely with Craven's Last House on the left, but also a bit of a misnomer as far as the actual film went. None of it really takes place in a house. True to his word, The Last House on Dead End Street did play the Grindhouse circuit in 1979. Watkins says he and collaborator Ken Fisher saw it in a 42nd Street theater as a double bill with Craven's The Hills Have Eyes. This was sort of serendipitous given The Last House on the Left connection. For his part, Watkins says the film inspired a visceral reaction in the audience, but he was pretty sure no one actually liked it. 
which was probably okay because Watkins doesn't really care for the 77-minute version of his masterpiece either. Okay, that's probably an understatement. He really hated most of the truncated version, particularly the voiceover narration at the end and the way they recut the film and made it so different from his original vision. Terrence Hawkins, Kenneth Hardy, Catherine Hughes, Patricia Kuhn, and William Drexel were all later apprehended and are in the state penitentiary. The mystery surrounding Last House on Dead End Street endured for decades and appeared unlikely to ever be solved, until a random event in the year 2000. In late November of that year, a user with the screen name PNest posted on the Fab Press message board saying he was Victor Janos. Fab Press is a boutique publisher who has put out some fantastic books on horror and cult cinema over the years, and the message boards were frequented by a lot of us who were interested in weird, transgressive cinema. The initial post was in response to a question about the film's origins, and PNS's first post was met with skepticism. Undaunted, Watkins quickly countered his skeptics by posting information that only someone intimately involved with the production could know. And it was in this moment one of exploitation cinema's most enduring mysteries was finally put to bed. Roger Watkins had made Last House on Dead End Street. But why? How? And what happened to the film for all these years? And who the hell was Roger Watkins anyway? With Watkins finally officially linked with his most infamous creation, and again, it should be noted that horror critic Chaz Balin had reported Watkins was the man behind the Victor Jano pseudonym back in the early 90s, although that was largely a historical footnote until Watkins came forward a decade later, fans learned that it really was a labor of love. Watkins not only directed the film, he wrote the script, starred as Terry Hawkins, and wore a bunch of other hats for the production. All under different pseudonyms, of course. A filmmaker, now 50 years old, was only too happy to reclaim ownership of his most enduring creation. Watkins had made other films over the years, many in the adult film arena under even more pseudonyms, but nothing he'd made had ever had the impact of The Last House on Dead End Street. I suspect it must have been sort of bittersweet for Watkins, finally coming full circle to the film that launched his career, but also caused him a fair amount of grief. With Watkins back in the last house fold, his baby, the film that people had struggled to see for decades and mostly knew about because it got a paragraph review in the Psychotronic Encyclopedia of Film, was finally primed for a reevaluation. Barrel Entertainment quickly acquired the rights to the film and produced a double-disc collector's edition DVD of The Last House on Dead End Street. The set, which is now out of print, is a treasure trove of materials for fans of Watkins' unsettling film. Filled with a commentary track featuring Watkins and Chaz Ballin, a 36-page booklet compiled by David Karakesh, behind-the-scenes footage, and more, it allows us to finally piece together the history of this maligned and misunderstood film. All right, this is me on the left. Roger, over here. And this is Chaz on the right here. I can bring it down a few notches if we need to back there. We don't want to blow anybody out of the sound booth. The barrel disc and extras and subsequent interviews with Watkins before his untimely passing in 2007 at the too young age of 58 dispel many of the myths that have dogged the film for years. Despite rampant speculation, The Last House on Dead End Street did not feature real murders on film. The cast, credited with pseudonyms, were predominantly undergrad students from the film department. A film professor, Paul Jensen, has a role as a blind caretaker who falls prey to Terry's murderous entourage. The film was shot in just a few short weeks on campus in an abandoned building in late 1972 and early 1973, not financed by Mexican drug lords or filmed in some other country as popular rumors insisted. Watkins was quick to lament what had happened to his film over the years. After the 1973 showings, it turns out that Last House on Dead End Street got caught up in legal limbo. 
This, the name changes, and the alternate cuts with fake credits are probably why this mystery endured for as long as it did. The film's legal woes revolved around actress Barbara McGraw, who agreed to appear nude in Last House. After filming completed, McGraw decided she wanted to be a Broadway star, and the specter of appearing naked in a film like Last House on Dead End Street, which was technically still the cuckoo clocks of hell at this point, convinced her she'd have limited options if people ever saw it. Watkins actually gave her the footage back, footage he describes as basic R-rated stuff, but she sued him anyway, and the case tied the film up in legal limbo for three years before Watkins finally won in New York State Supreme Court in 1976. As we mentioned earlier, somewhere along the way, Watkins' film got shortened dramatically and it got two new titles. The hunt for the elusive 175-minute cut of The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell is ongoing in 2023. Many assume that the footage is long lost, never to be seen again, but Watkins believed it was being kept in a film vault and that he'd need a lawyer to get it back. I'm not sure how much veracity there is to Watkins' theory on this subject, but I do know that the barrel DVD is long out of print and the Vinegar Syndrome has spent years trying to find the full cut for a Blu-ray restoration with no luck. Vinegar Syndrome co-owner Joe Rubin offered this update on the project way back in 2015. It's probably the most tedious restoration we've ever done. We keep on finding more materials for it that are slightly better in certain places than the previous copies, so we've had to redo, add to our restorations so many times. It's tedious, but it's coming. Unfortunately, no exciting revelations to be told, no fabled three-hour cuts, etc. But when it does eventually come out, it'll look better than ever, even if it's still not perfect. There's been no update since then on the status of the hunt to my knowledge, but the company did hide a 2K restoration of The Last House on Dead End Street as an easter egg on their Blu-ray release of Watkins' film Corruption. That might be as good as we ever get. Of course, I'm not entirely convinced that a sweet 4K Blu-ray restoration of The Last House on Dead End Street is actually a good thing. As an older guy who grew up in an era where we saw these movies on battered movie projectors or grainy 16th generation VHS dubs that looked like you were viewing them through a TV screen covered in Vaseline, the move to bring these movies to Blu-ray and beyond is at best a mixed blessing. The idea of seeing The Last House on Dead End Street in cleaned up 4K will almost assuredly kill the vibe Watkins worked so hard to create. This is a grungy, grimy, dirty, mean-spirited little film. The kind of thing you'd have seen in a grindhouse theater where your shoes stuck to the floor and it wasn't because someone hadn't mopped up spilled soda. Cleaning this film up for the masses will almost assuredly ruin some of the primal quality Watkins worked so hard to create. Exploitation films should never be pretty. And that's something modern audiences really struggle to understand. Of course, it might be hard to even clean up Last House on Dead End Street. As Fab Press owner Harvey Fenton pointed out, even the theatrical print he saw looked terrible. I have seen this film projected from a 35mm blow-up in a regular cinema. Anyone thinking their washed-out video is a bad dupe will be relieved to hear it looks just as bad on celluloid. Appian said, I do hope we someday get the full 175-minute cut of The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell and a new Blu-ray release of the film. The barrel two-disc set remains the definitive way to see Last House on Dead End Street, but it's no longer easy to find or cheap to buy. And no, I will not sell you mine. You should definitely track down your own copy, though, because this really is a cult classic. Don't just take my word for it, though. Let's take a break and talk about how the film has influenced an entire generation of extreme horror films. If we agree that H.G. Lewis and Coffin Joe basically birthed the splatter film subgenre in the late 1960s, which are pretty commonly held beliefs, the fact that The Last House on Dead End Street is so much more extreme and visceral just a few short years later really is something. The film's calling card, the multiple killings at the climax, were clearly inspirational to Japanese manga artist turned filmmaker Hideshi Hino when he was making guinea pig Flower of Flesh and Blood. 
Watkins' film straps a woman to a table and then lovingly shows her being dismembered, which is basically the entire plot of Hino's short. The film's influence is also very clearly felt in Unearthed Films founder Stephen Biro's 2014 film American Guinea Pig, Bouquet of Guts and Gore. That film's setup is very similar to the one in Watkins' film and just ups the splatter almost exponentially. I should also point out, I'm not denigrating either of these films for being inspired by Watkins' work. I think it's great. I love all three of these movies. Beyond that, we definitely see the influence in a less overt way in Fred Vogel's first two August Underground films. Those films find a group of depraved lunatics recording all of their atrocities, not so much to sell them, but just because they can. Honestly, this is really just the tip of the iceberg. One could make a case for a Serbian film being influenced by Watkins too. Often, these films were inspired by a diverse range of influences, but The Last House on Dead End Street has absolutely had an impact on the direction of splatter films even 50 years after it was made. That's quite a legacy for a film that people weren't even sure existed for most of that span. If you love weird, hardcore splatter cinema and haven't seen The Last House on Dead End Street, you should definitely remedy that. The aforementioned Vinegar Syndrome Blue is your best bet to see this thing, and I definitely recommend it. But if you want to cheap out, I think it's streaming on Tubi. Anyway, no one wants a movie night that's just one movie, so allow me to be your cult movie concierge and suggest several other films that pair well with this one for your next movie marathon. Honestly, I'm not really sure what to pair with this one. There are a lot of different ways you could go. I suppose the obvious choice here is Hino's guinea pig, Flower of Flesh and Blood. That one has a bit of an equally sordid history at this point, and it's more of a straightforward riff on Watkins was going for here without all of the artsy film school padding. This one goes straight for the splatter, and it's pretty exquisite. It's not for the squeamish, but neither is Last House on Dead End Street. This one is a bit hard to come by these days, because the guinea pig DVD box set is long out of print and fetches a pretty price on eBay, but I'm sure it's floating around on the internet. If you're looking to make it a full movie marathon, I'd highly recommend closing things out with Michael Powell's 1960 classic, Peeping Tom. We didn't really touch on Peeping Tom in this episode, but I feel like Watkins was almost assuredly familiar with it and was likely inspired by Powell's tale of a serial killer who filmed the deaths of his victims. I have a hard time imagining that his film professor slash supporting actor in this film, Paul Jensen, wouldn't have spotted the similarities. I'm sure we'll talk about Peeping Tom more in depth one of these days. Until then, though, you can grab a copy through a link in the description and show notes. It is another movie I highly recommend checking out. Alright, that's enough prattling about this one. Let's wrap this thing up. I don't know that we'll ever see the full three-hour version of The Cuckoo Clocks of Hell, but I kind of hope we do only because I think that film is likely a much truer representation of what Watkins was trying to achieve. The director made no bones about his displeasure with the 77-minute cut of his film, but so far attempts to find the full version have come up empty. Fingers crossed that changes at some point. I'm nervously excited about the prospects of spending 180 minutes soaking in Roger's unique brand of cinematic nihilism, though. The idea of a whole new generation being exposed to Watkins' depraved vision fills me with glee because most people really aren't ready for this film. Unlike so many of the controversial films in the early days of splatter cinema, Last House has never lost its power to unnerve me. It's not a good film in traditional critical terms. The filming is amateurish, it's poorly lit and overexposed, and the dubbing and sound mixing are worse than you'd find in a lot of Italian films. But even still, it has this power to unsettle you. The gore is pretty sublime for the time period. It's not as charmingly hokey as something like H.G. Lewis's early splatter efforts, but it never really lets off the gas once it starts rolling. Watkins may have been a college-aged kid blasted out of his head on amphetamines making a film with zero dollars and whatever help and equipment he could scrounge up. 
But rest assured, The Last House on Dead End Street has earned its reputation. This is a mean, vile little movie, and the longer cut somehow manages to sound even meaner and more upsetting. I mean, it opens with like 20 minutes of slaughterhouse footage. Honestly, I can't even imagine the three-hour version of this thing. When The Last House on Dead End Street tries to be a traditional film, it's borderline unwatchable. Yeah. I must spend more and more time looking at my coffee rather than drinking it. That's what I liked about the man in the bus station last night, buying me a cup of coffee. And the 77-minute cut of the film still has a lot of filler scenes that feel sort of oddly disjointed and ill-conceived. The film only really shines when it embraces the weirdness and splatter. It's not unlike the adult films it's centered around. We all skip the story scenes in those movies to get to the money shots. But in some ways, that's what makes the film effective and subversive. I might be giving Watkins more credit than he deserves, but he's really sort of backing up his film's thesis. The regular sex scenes and the story scenes are boring compared to the weird shit. But eventually, we'll get desensitized to even the weird shit, and then what? Well, I suppose the internet has answered that on some levels with real gore and other aberrant sites. But this is the most important question the film raises for me. Is this what Watkins was trying to prove, or did he just get lucky as a stoned-out-of-his-gourd student filmmaker looking to shock and titillate a grindhouse audience who felt they'd already seen it all? If it's the former, he's probably a genius. And having listened to him talk and read his interviews, I'm inclined to believe he knew exactly what he was doing. In some ways, The Last House on Dead End Street, like slasher cinema, feels like a very conservative film ideologically. For all its aberrant gore and snuff film aesthetics, it's really almost a cautionary tale like the ones we've seen put forth by the conservative fundamentalist movement here in America for decades. What happens if we allow adult films to proliferate? Eventually it'll get boring, and then people chase new thrills, and we get snuff movies. We've seen that faction run this same playbook for decades with music, movies, books, video games, and beyond. There's always a scapegoat. In Videodrome, Masha warns Max Wren off the trail of the production company responsible for the Videodrome transmission by telling him it's dangerous because it has something he doesn't, a philosophy. It's hard not to apply that same observation to Watkins' magnum opus. The Last House on Dead End Street remains a dangerous film because it and its creator had a philosophy. There's an unrelenting nihilism that colors every frame of this film. While you might snicker at the low budget or laugh at the overacting and dialogue, it's hard to shake the feeling that this is a film made with bad intent. One that wants to hit you where it hurts and then twist the knife in even deeper. In a world filled with extreme movies that often go for the gross out over delving into the truly unsettling aspects of human nature, Last House on Dead End Street is an anomaly. It's a film that will grab you by the throat and force you to gaze into the abyss. But are you prepared for what you'll find there? So, what do you think of The Last House on Dead End Street? Have you seen this one before, or is this your first experience with it? Leave me a comment and let me know. I may feature some on future episodes. If you're watching on YouTube, please be sure to like and subscribe. If you're on another podcast platform, consider leaving me a review and sharing with your friends. Until next time, I'm Mike Bracken, and you've just experienced another trip to B-Movie Babylon. The video vault is now closed.